This is Catalog and Cocktails. Hello, everyone. It is Wednesday once again, and it's time for Catalog and Cocktails. It's an honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand. My name is Tim Gasper. I'm a longtime data nerd and product guy, joined by Juan. Hey, Tim. I'm Juan Cicada. I'm the principal scientist here at Data.World, and it's always, it is the middle of the week. It's time to take a break, and it is the end of the year. And uh, this is our final episode of the season, season two. This is the 20th episode of season two and 70 episodes in total. And if you open up an Apple podcast, we'll say we have 75 episodes. It's because we have some little other snippets of other stuff and we've had some special edition of things. But this is 70 official episodes. This is amazing. believe it. That's crazy. <laughs> I I can't believe we have done we've chatted so much uh and it's always been a pleasure. It, we've covered so much fun. data ground and and we've made so many cocktails. And we have made so many cocktails that uh, it is our plan to write a book about data and every chapter, every section whatever will have different cocktail recipes. So it's going to be at least 70 different sections, well times 2, right? At least 140 because we always had some different uh I mean two plus if we take the guests they may have some stuff too. Anyways, we'll have a book about data <laughs> and cocktails. And you'll be able to make all sorts of cocktails out of it. And, you know, whenever we talk about the book and we talk about putting the cocktails into the book, it reminds me of that Seinfeld episode when, wasn't there like a coffee table book that could turn into a coffee table? There's a coffee table book about coffee tables for sure. <laughs> well, what are, what, are, what are you drinking today, Tim? Um, today I am drinking a cocktail called Remember the Main. It has an absinthe rinse. And it's got rye whiskey, um, it's got uh, sweet vermouth in it, and it's got cherry hearing. Pretty tasty. Well, today I'm pulling a Tim, which is I'm just drinking whiskey. <laughs> a Talisker Sky. Uh, I've been traveling. I'm still in Colombia, and uh, I'm heading back home soon. And I uh, just got from the airport, one of these. Um, so this is a really nice, smooth whiskey. Um just a couple of times. This is, I think this is the first time I do a pure whiskey. I think I had a beer the other day, but stuff. But anyways, yeah. Cheers. What are we toasting for, Tim? To the holidays, spending time with friends and family, and for finishing twenty episodes of the season, seventy total, and and Hell for yeah. everybody and for all our listeners, like it is really amazing. We had the Spotify wrap up, and and actually there was a stat. I think it was like ten people who have listened to every single episode on Spotify. Whoever you are, this is for you. Cheers. The 10 people are awesome. <laughs> All right. So today we're going to go dig into this and we have summarized. We've done the takeaways of the takeaways of the last 20 episodes. And um, we've categorized this in a couple of different uh, topics here. We have, we're going to talk about data infrastructure, about culture, strategy, analytics, and of course, we have to talk about data mesh, which I think is the mesh. hottest topic of everything. Um, so we're just going to dive into this, and and I think we're going to go back and forth. So let me just take off on on data infrastructure. Let's so do one, it. Of the one of the conversations we had was with uh, Emma Frim, who's the co-founder and CEO of Neo4j, and one of the main takeaways there was he was he was foreseeing kind of four different types of kind of call it databases that that, that, was, that we're going to see in the future. One is the document plus plus, right? Let it be, these are your Mongo, your couch DB. This is kind of to go create a single application, a project. It is super fast for development and scalable. Number one, two, of course, graphs, right? The world is getting more connected. That's what we're going to be seeing more. Three, time series databases, right? Uh, I think you mentioned that Mongo had launched some time series supports. There's other systems like Influx, but we'll be seeing more about time series. And fourth, it's the new SQL, right? It's the massively scalable and distributed SQL databases. Um, and another kind of interesting observations about what we, in that conversation was where analytics is going and all this machine learning. So if you're doing the data lake, you're kind of more of a data scientist and you're very more code centric versus if you're more in the cloud data warehouse, like the snowflakes approach, you're more of a data analyst and then it's more SQL centric. And they were, these two are converging into one. That's where we're seeing a lot of this snowflake and data bricks type of uh, drama around there. So that was our conversation with Emil. What about you? You go next, Tim. 
Yeah, sure. And by the way, I loved that conversation with ML. It was really interesting to see his take on sort of how the space is going to evolve, especially from a database perspective. Um, and the next data infrastructure uh, person we want to talk about is uh, Mamad Zadeh. So he is a, a mentor to Jamak, who we'll talk about later when we talk about data mesh, uh, and also former VP of engineering of Intuit. Uh, and one of the things that was interesting is we talked a lot about, do we have a data infrastructure crisis? Um, and we talked about things like the dysfunctions that are happening in different uh, data sort of environments right now. Things like over-centralization, where you've got a lot of people and processes sitting in a single silo. It doesn't scale. The accountability isn't being handled properly, and it's not in the right place. Because you've got all these subject matter experts, these SMEs that are in the domains, right? They are upstream in the different source areas and different parts of the departments that are actually creating the data. And we don't really have the right tools right now to support moving things into this decentralized world. And so what's happening is everything kind of just stays centralized and we just keep doing the things that we've been doing. Um, and what you see now is you see some people, this is sort of the second big dysfunction, people getting thrown together and uh, they're being told to solve the problem and they're doing so in a way that's efficient but not necessarily resilient or long-term. And so while you may be able to solve the problem sort of quickly right off the bat, um, you end up implementing debts that you have to sort of pay for in the future. Uh, and this can really have big long-term problems. And he talked about three big trends uh, that are happening. One is that data is starting to move from the back office to the front office. And so now it's becoming much more something that sort of your, your business users and, and sort of folks in the line of business are interacting with uh, and something that's more front of mind. It's not just something that the, the admin takes care of in the back corner. Um, he also talked about how AI and machine learning and self-service uh, are really becoming the forefront around what people are trying to do around data. And you see a lot of movement in those areas. And then finally, data being seen as business value, which is really important because you've now got sort of this role of the CDO, the chief data officer coming in. You've got people trying to really drive data-driven decision-making and data literate culture in the company um, and trying to make data something that is more business-oriented. And that's, that's super, super important to making data valuable. Now, we hit so many topics with Mamad. And so, you know, Juan and I definitely recommend that if you're listening and you haven't listened to that podcast with Mamad, it is golden. There are so many gems there. But one more key point that we'll mention is that Mamad mentioned that the CTO should really take more responsibility for data. Because uh, we talked about like who really is accountable, who is responsible. And he really said that, you know, and this is kind of a controversial statement, right, Juan, that like, engineers and engineering and the CTO organization to pay more attention to the data and they should take more ownership over it, not just expect that like, oh, the chief data officer is going to take care of it or, oh, you know, the analytics team is going to take care of it. No, th th I think that was one of the most important points uh, that I will remember out of all our conversations in the season. And it's one that I've talked to many people about and people like they raise their eyebrow eyebrows, but they're like, it kind of makes sense. So think about it. If if you're the one who's creating the application and you're you know how the data is flowing and you're you are writing logs and that's being shipped to different places, right? How about you model that and you organize the data in the way you know it should be consumed later on? That's a that that's that's where it gets produced. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. However, is it the now you're telling that software engineers these need in addition to doing the software and owning be responsible for software have to do it for the data? Yeah, that's a hard one, right? And 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 I think it's a big pause that we would have. So I think a lot of interesting kind of things to think about it right there. So that was a fantastic discussion. Definitely agree. This is one of my favorite episodes. So let me go. And, and next one we have here is with uh, Andy Palmer, the CEO of Tamer. And immediately, Andy is monolithics are dead. That was a conversation, right? About monolithics, and it kind of goes in. in a, it, it kind of follows up with this conversation we had with uh, about data mesh, and also this one about Mamad. Is one of the things he he, he called out is like, I don't meet any happy Palantir customers, right? Uh, they pay a bunch of uh, tens of millions of dollars, and that first wave of talent comes in, it's cool, but then it just tails off. So. Um, one of the, I think one of one of the recommendations is that we do just do one thing really, really well. But the question is like, what's good enough, right? And this is an honest conversation you need to have with vendors. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, metadata too. And he said, if data is like water, metadata is like the information, if the water is good or bad, it is integrated in 
everything. And I love that conversation, that, that point, because yeah, metadata is something that we need to start paying much more attention to the semantics, what this stuff actually means. Yeah. Talking about I, th- I think we were asking like, is there going to be a separate metadata stack or something like that? He's like, no, no, yeah. no. Like it's no, integrated no. in everything. Right. Exactly. We we're talking about the modern data stack. Is there a modern metadata stack? It's like, no, metadata is involved in everything. And we talked about declarative languages and that these are really something that we need to have more. They really, really matter. Um, and I like how he bucketed his kind of uh, different stacks of data, right? You want to have a catalog, you want to have some persistent storage compute cloud vendor, then you're gonna have a lot of pipelining, right? Let it be Python, or you're doing your ETL, right? If you're using Fivetran or DBT or stuff, and with orchestration, you're gonna have data mastering, you have data governance, privacy policy, and then you have a bunch of data consumption tools, right? This is where you're, you're clean governed data is going to live that people can go access. And then finally, I think data ops is, is, is very, was very uh, excited about the, the whole trend that we're seeing with data ops. So that was our conversation with Andy. Yeah, that, that was really a, a fun conversation with him. And uh, we always love it when somebody says something bold right out of the gates, right? Like monoliths are dead. And we're like, yeah, honest, no BS. Here we go. Um, so another really honest, no BS person, somebody we had a really great conversation with was Nick Schrock. He's the uh, co-founder and CEO of Elemental. It's the company behind Dagster, a uh, increasingly popular orchestration tool around data. Uh, and he's also one of the creators of GraphQL. So a storied history for him around data. Um, and what was fun about that conversation with Nick is that we especially centered around the modern data stack. And, you know, is it a technology? Is it a methodology? Is it an emotional state? Right. And we tried to explore sort of and unpack all of that. And he really gave us a nice perspective on the modern data stack. He said that it's about bringing software engineering best practices into data and that it started as a stack. But it's becoming more of an emotional aspect and a methodology. So it started maybe with, you know, Snowflake and, you know, a Fivetran or something like that on the ETL side and then a modern BI tool. And kind of starting with that, DBT hit the scene. And so when you look at these modern data stack images, you often see those as the players there. But Nick kind of articulated that, hey, it's 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 really more about the movement to the cloud, the reinvention of the data ecosystem, and the fact that um, we're trying to be more agile and more data ops oriented. And that really is becoming more the core of the modern data stack. And we talked a little bit about like how you should approach implementing a modern data stack and like what's the right what sort of steps and approach. Uh, and he talked about, well, the first thing you need to do is count things, right? You just need your basic metrics. He's like, you know, kind of approaching this with the KISS principle, right? Keep it simple, stupid is like, how many users do you have? Um, uh, all you need is simple modern data stack to begin, right? A cloud data warehouse, a transformation layer like DBT, the ability to ingest that data, something like Fivetran and analytics on top. Uh, and that can be a great starting point to really kick off your modern data stack. Uh, One other thing that I thought was useful was for him to help us understand orchestration a little bit and sort of these layers that sit around the modern data stack. And he really mentioned that orchestration is about helping all the elements of the modern data stack work together. And he mentioned that orchestration, because of this, really needs to connect to everything. And so does catalog. And so we kind of put orchestration and catalog into this layer that helps kind of unify and bring all of these things together. Yeah, one of the things I really liked about this conversation was just the the kind of the minimal modern data stack, right? What is the basic stuff? I think, and from there you, you and you use that to go count things, and then you define. Then you realize where, where do you want to go next? Mm-hmm. And one of those things that you define where to go next is this whole area about reverse ETL. And we had that conversation with uh, Tejas Manohar, who is the founder and co-CEO of High Touch. And this is one I'll be very frank. I was very skeptical about this reverse ETL thing, right? And and I actually left this conversation being convinced of a need for this. And I think uh, we, we, we kind of augmented the definition of it a little bit. So reverse ETL, right, is moving data from the data warehouse back to your application so you can take action on it. Um, and I think for me, one of the big aha moments is, hey, reverse ETL is more for kind of the business people, while the normal ETL is for data engineers. Now, because my argument was like, wait, 
couldn't you use ETL to do this reverse ETL stuff? But I think that was a very valuable argument saying, look, I just want the person who wants to get stuff back into Salesforce. They want to be able to do that themselves very quickly. And, and that's a very, that's a very important pain people have and something that can be addressed by this. Mm -hmm. One of the things yeah, that is needed. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. One. Yeah. I was saying one of the things that is needed, there is governance. And I think this is one of the stuff that we need to be careful about because the moment that you start pushing data out, like, well, how are people doing that? They're doing some other transforms out there. So that really needs to be governed, but also a way to, to kind of reduce a lot of that pain is having really good modeling. I think this is kind of those conversations that modeling is really, really crucial. And I think the, the definition we come here is that you put ETL in, your, in a warehouse, you add DBT and you have reverse ETL you basically have kind of the new modern MDM or the new CDP. So I think that was an interesting uh, way of thinking about that. Yeah, agreed. And, uh, and when you mentioned uh, about, you know, reverse ETL being more for business people than really for the engineers or the analytics engineers, whoever, right? Um, I think that's super interesting. And, it, and even though we think of reverse ETL as reverse ETL, right? And it kind of sits next to that in the diagram. Um, it, it's almost more like a part of the BI side of the equation because you've modeled your data, you've created that information in the warehouse. Now you want to put it to use, right? And so even though it's, yeah, it's integration, it's more for the purposes of making that information actionable by the different parts of the business, putting it closer to where they spend time in terms of what applications they're using, right? Um, so I, I think it's very interesting. It'll be fun to watch how that space, which is very hot right now, will evolve as we go forward. Now, Great. speaking of modeling, the next conversation was with Jans Osman. Uh, he is the CEO of Franz, the makers of AllegroGraph. And that was a very interesting conversation because although we had a lot of different topics, we especially dove into an interesting way to model your data called the entity event model where essentially everything that's happening in your environment can kind of be captured by entities that are doing things to entities, right? It's kind of this normal triple concept, except you add in the time element, making it sort of a quad, right? A quadruple, and that everything in your environment can be modeled with these quadruples, which is kind of cool because, it, and it actually connects to something that I'm seeing in a few other parts of the space right now. And I know, Juan, you're, you're thinking a lot about the space in this way as well. Uh, so there's this company, narrator.ai, that has this concept of the activity schema. And it's something that got discussed at, for example, the DBT Coalesce, a conference that uh, actually we got to participate in with uh, 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 you know catalogs and cocktails. Um, and so this idea of trying to create this sort of event-based model, which is really graphy in nature, uh, can be a way to understand the behavior of entities that my business cares about and uh, be able to know the current state or anything about the history of those entities with that data model. Uh, what do you think about that model, Juan? Is that is that pretty interesting from your perspective? I I think it definitely it is. I think it's uh, the first time you see it, it is something that it may not seem so natural and you're kind of get confused about it. And I, and then you're not convinced, like, really, can some, this something so simple actually work? Um, well, I think we just need to be careful about it. Right? It's not a silver right. bullet. It's not for everything. And, and uh, something that I even need to dig myself, dig, dig more into it. I think it's super, I've seen, I've seen very positive kind of implementations of, of, of different types of applications over it. But um I wonder how it combines with different types of modeling because it's sometimes right. it's not the only thing you want to go do. It's it'll be interesting to see as more and more implementations happen on either the entity event model or activity schema how those go and you know what are what are the sort of the pros and cons right because like any modeling conversation right oh do I do a star schema should I do this should I do that right it's always there's pros and cons that are associated with those different design choices and I think part of the whole data modeling is that you also need to understand who the user is and who right so sometimes people just give me one table that has orders. Give me one table that has customers. Like that's what you want. Right. Right. And, and so, so I think there, there, there's a devil's in the details here. And part of those details is understanding humans. Humans need to be part of this equation. 
Right. He said that the modeling is human problem solving, which uh, which fits in with a lot of what we've been talking about around knowledge, around modeling, around data product management, so on and so forth. Exactly. So to, to kind of wrap up on, on the state infrastructure side, we had a great conversation with Kirk Bourne, right? He's, he's a big Twitter celebrity. He's the current chief science officer at Data Prime and talking about buzzwords and stuff. And one of the two ones that we really centered on was Industry 4.0, right? What the heck is Industry 4.0? Well, it, it's about hyperconnectivity. It's about knowledge that is being transported and, and how and why, because there's sensors everywhere. And that's it, right? Industry 4.0 is where you have little sensors all over the place. And part of the whole topic around Industry 4.0 is digital twins, right? It's a computer model of that real thing. And if there is a problem, you want to be able to go replay it within that digital twin and be able to go simulate it. So I think that's something that we've been seeing a lot in manufacturing. It's kind of getting to different industries. And I'm getting convinced more and more that there's something in there. There's, it's still fairly abstract, but I think we'll, we'll see some play, some interesting players doing something very concrete around it. The other one is the intelligent edge, right? It's a systems to respond at, at the point of data collection. You want to put the smarts where the data is. So data, because we're going to have so many sensors all over the place, right? You want to be able to move that computation down to, to the edge then in a sense. And hey, your phone is a sensor. So basically every, I mean, we've been creating this intelligent edge for, for decades now, given all the smartphones and everything we have in our pocket. And which leads us to, I think, a very important piece here is we're going to have large amounts of small data. I really like that one. Yeah, I thought that really hit, you know, people a lot of times with big data talk about volume, velocity and variety, right? Um, and especially the variety aspect is becoming more and more and more sort of in focus when you think about how Industry 4.0, Intelligent Edge and, and sort of how all these things are going to come together. So it'll be interesting to, to watch as we go forward. So next, next category, culture. So obviously, you know, we've talked a little bit about the infrastructure side. That's more of a technology oriented conversation, although, right, it always comes back to people and process. That's always really key. Uh, another big theme of a lot of the folks that we've been talking to was how do you address that people and process? How do you make sure that your company or, you know, the world is able to be more data literate, be more effective with data and be more responsible stewards of data? And uh, we actually kicked off our season, uh, season two, with a conversation with the uh, the first chief data scientist of the U.S., uh, DJ Patil, who, uh, first of all, was an honor to have him join the show. What a great conversation. Um, and we dove into how can you really empower people to do more with data, be more effective with data. Uh, now that uh, we're in pandemic mode and and sort of what does that all mean and wh where does this all go going forward? So we talked about citizen data scientists. Um, he was very positive on this being sort of a concept that, you know, it isn't uh, somebody's day job, but they're becoming skilled in data. They're becoming a part of the conversation. They're starting to use these self-service data tools, perhaps even people who are, you know, out there in the world who are able to do things like look at COVID data and be able to analyze it and incorporate it and come up with their own thoughts around these things. We kind of dove into like, is that a bad thing or a good thing? And DJ was really pushing for like, it's, it's, primarily a good thing, right? Like, yeah, you know, it's going to be a challenge where people are, you know, trying to make conclusions about data and not everybody understands about like data bias and like the things that can go wrong with data. But overall, the more people that are engaging and working with the data, that's a really positive thing. So I think that's a very positive message to put out there. Um, we also talked about how we have checklists for so many things around data. Um, like, for example, whenever you're pushing software to production, if you're a company that cares about not breaking things in production, you usually have that checklist of things that, you know, like, okay, is it documented? You know, did, did, the, did the test succeed? You know, did the build compile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? We have checklists for so many things, but, but why don't we have a checklist for data products? And what would be in that checklist? And also, like, what would be in that checklist as it relates to ethics? So we kind of explored a little bit of what's in that checklist. And he actually had a list of things, which uh, we don't have written right here. But I remember he went through that list of things. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. So um, that's definitely something to check out in that podcast if you haven't listened to that one. 
Um, to kind of wrap on DJ, uh, we talked a little bit about education and sort of like where data needs to go next. We talk about how it needs to be more a part of, uh, of curriculums of different organizations. And you're seeing more of that happen, but it can even go further. And that we're likely to see more and more specialization and hybridization around data. And so he talked about, like, for example, you have like biotechnology careers where you have sort of like IT and technology mixing with biology and you get this sort of hybrid career. Similarly, we're going to see some interesting things around data where we'll see specializations in data and we'll see hybrid careers around data where you're leveraging data more in these different kinds of groups. Uh, and then finally, we kind of ended around ethics and where things need to go from here. He mentioned the five C's around data ethics, consent, clarity, consistency, control, and consequences, and really went into why each of those aspects are really, really valuable and important. So our next conversation was with Denise Gosnell, who's a CDO of DataStax. And we started talking a lot about kind of open source and data. And it's gotten to this conversation about transparency, about we need to understand how even the work you do fits within the data services and everything within the organization. For example, like you're working on a recommendation algorithm. Like how does that work all the way to the end? Like that work that you're doing, how does that affect the end customer, the end users around that? And that it's not just about uh, we need, not just data observability, but also data traceability, right? Also connected to data lineage to understand how things are, are, are being moved around, right? That's the transparency that we need uh, within an organization. And part of that transparency is that we need the metadata. And it's not just another, I, I love this quote that we have, not another metadata system, but a metadata ecosystem where I can place and and uh, I can place tools, I can replace tools, I want to be able to plug and play, unplug all types of tools that I want, but I, I can keep that transparency, understand how the data is being moved within my ecosystem. That was a very, very important, I think that kind of this whole notion of transparency is key here. Mm -hmm. And um, we ended up talking about kind of developer empathy. There's so many explosions of tools right now and technologies that we really need to be empathetic about how do developers right are dealing with this stuff because it's just it's 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 a, they're drinking from a fire hose and i think a way to go deal with this is like let's start with the real problem understand a real problem we understand what are the technologies that are needed to go go address that and one of the technologies that she's really excited about is graphql right it's a it's now enabling to do federation and it's getting very close to how a graph structure kind of some dra graph structures around it so you, it's getting very powerful that graphql is probably even becoming a graph language. So that was our yeah. conversation with Denise. That, that was a, a great conversation. It was cool to hear a little bit more about what might be coming around GraphQL and how that's becoming more and more a really great front end to uh, being able to work with and leverage graph data. Uh, and I love her comments about the metadata ecosystem, right? You don't want to have a black box um, and you want to be able to leverage that, that data in sort of resilient and future-proofed ways. And speaking about black boxes, uh, Steve Whitla, the founder and consultant for Visual Meaning, helped us learn a little bit more about his story around green boxes. Um, as you can see, I'm looking for good segues here today. Um, so green box was a fun story that he told. And I'll talk a little bit more about sort of overall what we talked with uh, Steve about. Uh, he gave this story about how um, uh, he was, you know, somebody was talking uh, to, you know, the different group in an organization, uh, and they kept on talking about like this green box, right? And it's like, oh, the green box, it helps with industry collaboration. It helps with being able to bring the different people together. This is the future. The green box is going to help us. And he was like, what is this green box? Like, what are you all talking about? Uh, and he kept on talking to the next person and traced it all the way down and finally got to somebody who actually knew where the green box phrase came from. It was because the most powerful and high-ranking person had entered the room and only had a very short period of time and started writing on the whiteboard, like, these are the things that we need to do as a company. And then in the center of it all, the most important thing he drew with a green marker, and it was the green box. But then he had to leave the room because he had another meeting. And so then everybody was like, oh, the green box. Like, yes, we must do the green box. And from then on, green box had this visual meaning of being like the most important thing that we need to work on. And it was all because the most important and most powerful person in the room drew it and then left. And now now we're stuck with this meaning, right? 
I think that's such a funny story. And, you know, all of what we talked around Steve really revolved around this concept of meaning and what is meaning and how do we get to better shared meaning? And so he said that meaning is when you connect to experiences. How do you know what your, that your experience is the same as somebody else's experience? You know, and we've even brought up on our show a few times this concept of relative truth or everybody has their different truths, right? So you've got all these facts and you've got these different truths. And how do you reflect that and respect that there's these different truths, but then try to bring alignment together so that we can communicate and we can be more effective as a company? Um, there are different definitions of things like customer, for example, and all the and in many t- cases you can actually tie it to a phrase that Steve used was tribes. Right? There are different tribes within our organization. There's different tribes around the world, and each tribe has their own sort of uh, alignment around their shared meaning that may not align with the shared meaning of other tribes. And so it becomes really important that companies have a principle around shared meaning. And he even went so far as to say, we asked him in our lightning round, hey, do you think that it should be part of your actual code, like written into the principles of the company? And he said, yes, like we should be moving towards shared meaning being a core principle of our organizations to be able to do more and do better for the world and for ourselves, right? Um, and I think one last thing I'll note on um, on Steve's session was the importance of people in all of this. Right. We talked a little bit about like how machines are obviously a part of this equation. And, and we decided not to dive too much into the machine side of things because machines live within tribes of people. And these tribes have biases, they have human faults, and then these things get inherited and embedded in the machines. So we should not be um, you know, misaligned or, or, mis- or misunderstand to think that just because we implement machine learning or we implement semantic logic, semantics can especially be tricky here, right? That just because we implement these things doesn't mean that we've solved shared meaning, right? It just means we've encoded it. We've encoded the meaning that we chose to encode. And so we need to make sure that we're aligned and that we're communicating. And drawing is one thing that we dove into that can be a great way for us to have symbols and have more visual ways to communicate with each other to align on that shared meaning. Yeah, I love his comment. If, if you say tomato, I, I say tomato. Do we mean the same thing? But if we draw it, maybe we'll realize, oh, we do. Right. And right. Then how do you like and how do we ground this in reality? I remember I was pushing it, pushing him and he's like, well, first of all, be around the person who actually knows the most about it or who has the most experience around it. And second, drawing it right. Literally go into a whiteboard and go draw these things. If you're talking about something abstract, well, guess what? It's too hard to draw something abstract. So by forcing you to go draw something, you you, you ground it more to reality. So I, I think that was a big aha moment. It's like, yeah, drawing is important. So talking about people, right? Uh, another great conversation we had was with Danielle Oberdeer. She's the founder of Nikayo Data and, and behind the Data Fem podcast. And we're just talking about data jobs. And I really like that we just we came to the, the takeaway is there's not one single definition for all these job titles, right? What is a data analyst? What is a data scientist? All these things. Actually, you should put those titles aside and look at the job description. And a good way that kind of we just divided this line too, there's two cohorts, right? You can think about it as there's a front office. So you're working on being innovative and, 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 and doing kind of a lot of the day-to-day stuff. Right? And then second is you're kind of in the back office, right? You're probably implementing infrastructure. You're creating, uh, you're operationalizing the data. So almost in a way, like when it comes to software development, right? You have a, a back-end developer, a front-end developer, you have a full stack. I think the same way we can see that around data. And another interesting topic that we had is about certifications. Like this is this can be a very big deal, and it's important to you depending on where you are in your career and what you're trying to go do, get a certification. Like this can really help you. And also networking. Networking is one of those really really important things that we need to start doing. And I think that's one of the things how we start understanding what are the roles out there, how these are being, how these are evolving, and frankly, how you can probably find your next job too. So that was our conversation with Danielle. Yeah, I, I thought that was a, a fun conversation to dig into these different roles. And, and one, one thing I like that she said was that um, if you're an employer and you don't have clarity on the role that you're putting out there and what the definition of that role is, you're probably putting the cart in front of the horse, right? There's a lot of companies that are kind of like putting these roles out there like, oh, we need a data engineer. We need a data scientist. And it's like, why? Like, why do you need that? Right. And if you can't articulate what your goals are, then then you may be 
you know, kind of, you need to get your goals in order to know really what the right skills are to bring in. And if you're, uh, you know, looking for a job uh, in a data role, uh, you may want to ask your potential employer, right? Future employer. Um, what are, what are, what goals are you trying to drive with this role, right? Analytics engineer, data scientist, data engineer, whatever it is. Right. Uh, and if they're like, well, eh, you know, insights for the organization, right? Like it's like, uh Oh, that's a red flag. Right. <laughs> it's an excellent point. Um, so next conversation uh, that we had was with Parsa Srinivasa, who is the chief data officer with Verisk, um, also a big part of this sort of data culture, data ethics sort of category here. And we especially dove into data responsibility. Um, and we talked about three buckets of where data responsibility kind of emerges from and sort of you know, specific tactics and disciplines you need to have around your data. The first one is data security and protection, right? When you get data, you need to make sure that you're protecting it, monitoring it, managing it, keeping track of the perimeter, keeping track of access, right? So security is obviously very important around data. The purpose of the data, why was it collected? What was the consent that was associated with that? And aligning the uses of that data to the purposes in which that data was collected, right? And part of this is having data policy, it's having data procedures, and it's creating a culture of responsibility and responsible use of data within your organization. And then the third bucket was confidentiality. Um, you don't have to tell everyone that the data exists or what the purposes were around the data. And in some cases, you're actually violating uh, the sort of the, the rules and the, the industry frameworks in which you've collected that data if you're giving out too much information. And so you should think about, like, what is the confidentiality framework that is around this particular piece of data um, and who needs to know about this data, really considering, like, you know, if people know it exists, they're going to probably ask for it, and we should make sure we're not breaking the trust. Um, he also put forward a spirit framework that uh, I really, really liked, and I know Juan did as well. Uh, I liked it so much, in fact, that I'm in the process of trying to put together a store for uh, catalog and cocktails, and one of the t-shirts is going to be a spirit t-shirt. So be on the lookout for that. You may want to buy a couple. Uh, and spirit stands for security, privacy, inclusion responsibility, impartiality, and transparency. And basically, he put spirit forward as the key principles around data responsibility and governance. And I really love this because not only is it easy to remember, but also it really hits all the key components of like, if you're a new chief data officer, or maybe you work at a smaller company where you're kind of coming in and you're just a data leader, right? You want to be able to put the right policy and principles foundation in place that's still agile, right? Because you don't want to boil the ocean. Thinking about spirit, security, privacy, inclusion, responsibility, impartiality, and, and transparency gives you the right framework to think about all those things. And if that's not enough, one more thing is that he put forward a roadmap for companies to take advantage of that uh, really makes it clear what you should do as a company. So it's, first of all, take it seriously as an organization. You need sponsorship, that means, from the top. So get executive sponsorship. Make sure you create principles around your data. Spirit is a great way to do that. Third, create a core group under the sponsorship sponsorship of the CEO that drives those changes. Fourth, execute that plan and that you know as a group for education, evangelism, and rollout of data and data enablement tools. And then finally, and very very importantly, don't boil the ocean. Make an incremental step, measure and monitor, and then take your next step. I really love this conversation. Those three buckets of security, purpose, and confidentiality. The, the analogy I did was like getting um, asking my neighbor to lend me the, his car, right? I'm going to lend me a car. I'm going to protect the car. If I'm going to use a car. I'm going to use it for the purpose I told him. I'm going to use it to go get groceries or whatever. And confidentiality is I don't need to go off tell everybody that I'm using my neighbor's car. And so I really like that. I, this, this was those those are very three things. Those three things made a big impact here. Mm -hmm. All right, so now let's go off to another uh, topic here was about strategy. This is interesting because I, do, I was not expecting us to go delve into a lot of data strategy discussions, but this was just something that just naturally came up. So mm -hmm. we had a conversation with Mike Ferguson. He's a managing director of intelligent business strategies. And uh, his point was that, hey, the last decade has been a, a lot about development. We've invested a lot of money in data. We're not getting as much bang for our buck right now. 
I think this is something that a lot of people are getting quote unquote worried about that we need to start showing more value, right? We've been investing in data science teams. It's been five, six, seven years. Like, okay, let's start seeing more value. Let's start seeing the value here. And we always have a discussion between centralization and decentralization. I think his approach of seeing it is it's really a federated model where you're going to have some center of excellence. And I think that's the balance that you want to go find. But it is so challenging because in a way, it's like we are putting together a jigsaw puzzle, but there is no front of the box of what we're building. So when you're so when you have so many moving pieces within an organization, we need, we need to figure out what that front of the box is, but we kind of sometimes don't know. So what is a test for organization to know how much they're using their data? He's like, you we really need to be measuring the business outcomes of your data analytics project. Do you have a catalog? Do you know what data you have and are you tracking that? Do you know how these data products that are being delivered, how they're being used for what specific use cases? And all this needs to be tied to a business strategy. You need to know who is using it. And part of this is that it's not just a data and a tech problem, right? There's so much organizational and cultural issues that need to be addressed. And I think this is part of the strategy we need to go define. And we need to go tie all of this to the business outcomes. And literally, can we go tie this data work that occurred to some revenue that increased or some risk that was decreased? Like we, So I really love this conversation with Mike is because he's like, we need to go push to the, the, to the true connections of all this data work and dot, dot, dot. What are those dots all the way to the exact value that it is providing to the company? And, and this is something that we need to go connect those dots tighter that we're not doing. Yeah, I, th I thought that was a really, really great takeaway there. And actually, um, we talked with Lars Albertson, the founder of Sling, and that also was a conversation focused around data value. Um, I think particularly it was called How to Think About Data Value was the name of our session. Uh, and he especially talked about data value in the context of being informed and being able to make better human decisions and the importance of data and being able to serve the humans, right? Uh, and then also data being fed into products. Uh, data products obviously are a really key theme that we've heard across a lot of our different sessions that we did this season. Uh, and you should be thinking about how data can be more embedded in the products that you're providing, both internally and externally from your organization, and that those things can drive a lot of value for those different stakeholders. He used a very interesting analogy where it was sort of around hamburgers. And he was talking about how like, you know, technology can be a driver and accelerator of value, including value around data and how at first, right, you know, you're making a hamburger and you're rolling one hamburger at a time. Right. And then you're starting to automate it. You're using tools. Right. And tools now kind of come to play. But then the last step, what he called the industrial step, is actually applying more process and a framework around it all. And he used the example of like, there's one, it means one, it's one thing to like have tools like that help you make hamburgers. It's another thing to have McDonald's, right? And we joked a little bit about like, is McDonald's a really positive analogy here? Like maybe, sure. Um, but, you know, the idea of like, you know, taking that process to the next level is key around creating industrialization of realization of data value. Um, so, you know, chew on that for a second. Um, bottoms up empowered innovation is key to driving data value. So he was really pushing like, hey, empower people throughout the organization to be part of that conversation. He especially pointed to a podcast around uh, that's around Spotify and how Spotify had to implement their own empowered democratized data uh, sort of data innovation. Uh, and then we talked a little bit about Hadoop. We, Hadoop is one of those favorite things that we like to kind of poke fun at a little bit, right? Um, and he said that really Hadoop was a big blessing in disguise for two reasons. One is that immutability ended up being an important best practice to ensure that there was repeatability, lineage, and good neighbors in your Hadoop data lake, right? So immutability all of a sudden became something that we thought about and cared about as organizations. And that's important, right? Because you want things to be sort of facts, facts that are stated, and they don't disappear or change or get, you know, mutated, right? Those are the facts. And then secondly, 
democratization sort of had to happen. And it kind of happened by accident because Hadoop was such like a flat environment where, you know, there wasn't a lot of organization to it. There wasn't a lot of access control around it, especially in the early days. And so you had to actually get better at people in process in order to handle the fact that it was so blunt, right? Uh, And this is important because it was like the first time we really had to stretch that muscle. And you can kind of thank the Hadoop ecosystem, you know, its rise and so it's, and even its fate for being a trigger for the self-service analytics and data empowerment movement. And then talking about tools, that was a conversation we had with uh, Eric Bernhardson, who was a former CTO at Better. He was kind of one of the first guys at Spotify doing all their recommendation algorithms. And right now he's uh, preparing his next thing. Um, So when it comes to tools, it's like, oh, there's these first generation of tools and everybody gets really excited about them. It lets you do things for the first time. And then there's a newer generation of tools that come along that are, that goes from enablement to now it's productized. And because the the conversation here is how do you know which tools to go use? Because there's so many out of the, uh, so many tools out there right now. And, and the, the test of time, right. Is, uh, what are the tools that have been around for so much, um, like we were talking about like SQL and C, right? They've been around for like 50 years, right? So so the thing is, uh, what are going to be the tools that are going to be like that for the future? So I think that's one of the interesting things that there's so much stuff out there. We need to figure out what are those tools are going to uh, survive that test of time. And one of them are tools that are going to be declarative languages, right? Because like SQL, they're very important for business logic. We want to have that higher level abstraction. And when it comes to tools and the people, like it's always like, do we just let people go, go, go out with their own tools, or what is their strategy? I mean, at, at one point, you want to make sure that there's good adoption and people actually enjoy. I mean, this is again, it's a people thing too. You want your developers to enjoy the tools that they have, but you don't want to waste so much time on infrastructure stuff. So there's some balance that has to be done. And we, I think, we were always joking about the 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 Matt Turk's uh, diagram of all the different boxes. And yeah, there's too many boxes and, and there will be fewer boxes. There'll be a lot of consolidation. The question is, what will that be? That's the thing. It's a big open question. Um, and throughout the conversation about what tools to go use, it's always the theme was how is this connected to the business? And, and this is why it's such a the strategy question. We need to be able to connect all these decisions that we're making about technology and the tools we're using to the business. And finally, I remember one of the things he said is we need SQL queries, we need scatter plots, and a curious mind. I love that. That's a, that's very quotable there. Um, also in this realm of data strategy, we chatted with Doug Laney, the innovation fellow uh, at West Monroe. Um, and we talked a lot around, um, you know, is data the new oil or is it the new Herman Miller Aeron chair and kind of talking about like, you know, what's, what, what is the value of data and what are the words that we should really avoid around data, data right? Uh, and uh, he, he kind of jokingly, but also seriously said, well, data is the new data. It's not anything else. We shouldn't be trying to force these other analogies on it because data is different than a lot of these other things. Data creates more data when you use it. Data is not depletable, right? You can use it multiple ways simultaneously. You can go back and use it again when you didn't think of a way to use it before, and now you can think of ways to use it, right? Uh, data also has to be protected and managed, right? And so there are things that you need to do around data that's unique around security, around confidentiality, around purpose. Uh, Data is not on the balance sheet. It's not an asset class status. And so we talked a little bit about like, if data has value, should it really maybe be on that balance sheet? Does it have something that it should actually be accounted for? And he actually dove a little bit into a cost approach and a market approach and an income-based approach to actually put a value on your data. And I know that he actually has some interesting books on this particular topic. So for those of you that are interested to learn more about sort of data monetization or data value calculation, you can definitely check that out. Uh, But he also talked about non-financial ways to think about your data as well, like intrinsic value, the business value of data and performance value. So I think that's super interesting. And one other topic that he brought up was, um, you know, this idea of the chief data monetization officer. It's something that actually Bill Schmarzo mentions. Um, And uh, Doug kind of said, 
Well, chief data monetization officer, like, shouldn't that just be the chief data officer? Shouldn't we be expecting the data organization to be driving that value? Uh, and we all kind of agreed, like, yeah, chief data officer should be driving more of that. So, you know, if you're if you're listening to Doug and you're listening to Mamad, right, the CTO and the CDO need to team up and they need to be doing more around driving value of data. And one of the things I really like that got me thinking is it shouldn't be a data owner. It should be the data trustee. I think uh, that's uh, that was that was an interesting uh, interesting point here to think about. Then, so let's go on to our, our our we're almost towards the end here about analytics, and we had this conversation with Cindy Housen, who is chief strategy officer at ThoughtSpot, and also she's a host of the the Data Chief podcast, so one that we really love, and and we've been very uh, we've we've catalog and cocktail has been very inspired from uh, the the Data Chief. And one of the things that we're talking about is, hey, uh, with all this self-service kind of uh, BI analytics, it's like Spotify. Like now everybody can be a DJ. So the question was, should everybody be a data DJ? Her answer is yes. Should everyone be able to answer business questions with data? Yes. Should everyone be an analyst? No. And I think one thing is getting an answer to a question. Another thing is doing an analysis about that data. That was a very, very important takeaway right there. And something I also that I liked is granular data, getting into the most granular pieces of data. That's where the money is. Yeah, we can have all these aggregated views about it, but I want to understand really this particular person, customer, purchase, and so forth. That's where the money is. And uh, don't build data cubes anymore, please. That's what City is telling us. And some of the other discussion was, hey, low code. We talked about low code and no code. And I'm like, it's different. It's a change. We we may be afraid, but let's embrace it, right? It may be easier ways to go answer questions. I still have my a lot of my skepticism about low code and no code, but that's a valid point, right? Let, let's embrace this. So, and becoming this data DJ, it's a cultural problem, right? There, there there's uh, there's fears, there's there's risks. Um, but I think there's, there's, for example, one of the place, one of the things we talked about was the shadow IT. But she, I loved how she turned that into an opportunity, saying, "Hey, that, that shadow IT is probably an incubation lab, right? That's where they're actually doing things. That they're open to go do different things. That could be your grassroots. But leadership needs to buy into this. Um, and I think a lot of the disconnect that occurs happens in the middle because that maybe the top, the executive will understand it, maybe the bottom, right? Grassroots understand it, but that disconnect happens in the middle. You really need is executive kind of leadership that can drive that whole thing through from top to bottom. So that was with Cindy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I can see a theme here across all of these different episodes of empowerment and trying to push more responsibility down into the bottom, you know, the, the lower levels of the organization, whether it's empowering them around innovation, empowering them around, you know, data, empowering them around sort of ethics and, and, and responsibility around data. You know, that's definitely a theme that's across a lot of these different speakers that we chatted with. Um, and uh, the second uh, person that we want to mention in the analytics realm is Kelly Wright, the uh, COO of Gong. Um, and she really went into how AI uh, can be really effective and helpful uh, in uh, data and analytics and uh, really this concept of what happens when everyone is a data worker. Um, and what we kind of explored was that AI can be helpful for empowering people with data because it can help you to get a more holistic approach to creating your version of reality. Um, and it helps you to answer sort of questions or things that you want to design, such as, can I automate something that folks want to always know all the time? Uh, there are certain questions that people are always asking. These are the kinds of things that you can use AI to actually sort of predict and model and present those insights to users. And how do we help to serve out insights that are from questions that people may not even know to ask? And um, what was interesting is that we, uh, you know, talked to her a little bit in the past about this concept of like data apps. And she was very interesting uh, in that, like, she, she doesn't want to think of like things like what Gong is doing and some of these other sort of like interesting next generation analytics applications as data applications, because they're not just sort of only looking at your data and just sitting in within within the realm of like, okay, I'm going to look at your, you know, your data warehouse, and I'm going to activate that data in your data warehouse. It's really actually going all the way to the front of the stack. 
And this concept of, you know, if you want to unlock reality, if you want to achieve true reality and then empower and use AI to give you better insights on that, you actually have to start with good collection of data and semantic collection of data. And that was one of the things that we dove into a little bit around Gong is how they're actually, you know, they're tracking the phone calls and then they're translating that into information. And they're then combining it with things like HubSpot and Salesforce data to then add some of the, the sales semantics. Um, that's really interesting to me that like you're, you're, you know, it's not, all, you know, we talk so much about the modern data stack and it always seems like things are going to hang off of that modern data stack. But then there's these end-to-end -end applications too that are very important part of the ecosystem that are driving tons of value around data and empowering people who are, just a salesperson or, you know, a, me as a product manager to get a ton of value out of data without being a data engineer, without being a data analyst, without being an analytics engineer. And with that brings us to the final topic, uh, data mesh. I think almost in every episode, if data mesh wasn't named, at least we talked about it's kind of the principles and stuff. And I think this is definitely the number one hottest topic right now. And I think mm -hmm. that it's been a topic of the entire year. I think started earlier episode earlier in the year, we had, we had a, something about like the data, uh, data fabric and data mesh. Uh, our episode in April of, of this year, 2021, we had uh, an episode with Shamak who's a the director of emerging technology, ThoughtWorks, and kind of the, the founder here of this data mesh movement. And, we started out to kind of uh, the year with on a very high level, what was data mesh, right? It was, it was very abstract. It was a uh, data mesh is not a thing. It's not an architecture. You can't buy it. It's an approach. It's a vision for a better future and a path to get there. Uh, kind of, I remember talking to Shamak. It's like, think about that ideal world. Like how would we deal with, how would it, how would an ideal world look like? It's you've broken the problem to smaller pieces. And the result is that you've really moved the data to the places that actually need to own it. And all the nodes on that mesh are these shareable data pieces. And you have data products that are awesome, that have incentives, that you give bonuses to people because they're connected to other things and, and, and people use them. And she had this phrase, I remember saying, data has a heartbeat. Uh, and that heartbeat is this autonomous unit about compute and policy and data. And so frankly, I think it was very abstract. And, and, and throughout this year, we've seen a lot of people poking at data mesh, people really kind of drinking that Kool-Aid and saying, this is the thing that we've been missing. And then people are like, what is data mesh? Uh, is this a data mess and the data lake and mesh and mach, right? No, no, you can find all the jokes on Twitter about this stuff. Some pretty hey, great we jokes. Even, <laughs> we, we even had our own data mesh debate around uh, a couple of, during the season, but this is where we ended up after this year, right? I think one, it's a paradigm shift towards one, treating data as a product and two, decentralization. And what is treating data as a product means it, it, it happens if you move data to the domain, right? It, I, I call this out. It's like, it's the experience should be the same as, a, as if I'm buying a product on Amazon, right? You can find it on your own. You have helpful information to make that decision of if you're going to go buy it, how to go use it. It has reviews. You can provide feedback. And on, on the decentralization aspect, well, you really need to go find that right balance between centralization and decentralization. And this depends on the size of your company, on the culture, and so many different aspects within your company. I think there's now four clear established pillars that we that it's very easy we can go dive into. One, domain-driven ownership of data, data as a product, self-service platform, and a federated computational governance. I'll talk about that last one in a second. It is clear that it is not a technology. It is if someone is selling you a data mesh product, please run away as fast as you can. And as Right now, the current focus of this conversation this entire year has been about the technology, specifically about the self-service platform of that, that second pillar, uh, sorry, the third pillar of data mesh. And this is not surprising because, hey, we're technologists and this is the best, this is what we know, this is our bread and butter. But at the same time, this worries me a lot uh, because, well, we end up going back to our old habits. And I think uh, one of the, when these four pillars have been established, the, that last one, the federated computational governance, is considered the, in, the enabling pillar of all the other ones. 
But to the best of our knowledge, I mean, everybody we've been talking to here on the, here on our podcast and the show with customers, with our prospects, with our friends and everything, we just haven't seen anything concrete about it. So what we're really hoping for this in this new year and is that we get to some more concrete definition of what is federated computational governance. How does a, what does that actually mean for data mesh? And what is the role of data catalogs and data discovery? And specifically, it kind of, and it, we want more case studies of data mesh successfully implemented in the wild. Mm-hmm. I think That's those, are, data mesh. those are some really great takeaways around data mesh. And it's clear that if you're going to look back at the year, like year in review, right, a few trends are going to kind of emerge there, but probably number one on that list is going to be the emergence and popularity around data mesh. It's clear that this is making a huge impact uh, not just in terms of the ways that people want to do best practices, but just the fact that we're talking about it, right? Talking about how we start doing a better job of handling this at scale. And as you mentioned, Juan, right, it's not just about technology. And we have to, as a as a group, right, as data people, we all need to work together to make sure that data mesh doesn't get diluted into just some sort of a technology paradigm, right? Um, Jamak talks about it as a socio-technical approach. Let's not forget about the socio aspect of that socio-technical approach. Definitely. Well, people know that after, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests for advice. So we have now compiled every piece of advice that the guests have had. So Tim, you take it away. Yeah, sure. It's, it's kind of like the lightning round and advice combined together with no guests. Do you like it or do you not? I don't know. Let us know. But so much dense goodness here. So I'll start us off. So DJ Patil's advice was work with amazing people. If you're not working with amazing people, move on. Uh, If you're working with great people that are kicking your ass, making you happy, making you cry, great, right? Like that's where you want to be, where you guys are passionate and happy about how you're approaching data. Uh, and uh, how could I uh, how could I really do what I do without all the people that have been part of, of my life? So awesome advice by DJ. Yeah. Denise Gosnell, she actually had just come back from a sabbatical, and her advice was take a sabbatical. I love that, and I look forward to taking a sabbatical sooner than later so I can just sit down and just think and enjoy and appreciate everything that I have. And think it, look at what empathy looks for yourself if you want to know what it looks for others. Great advice. Um, for those that are looking, um, I have a kitten. Um, for those that are listening, uh, you have no idea what I'm saying right now. A kitten oh, has man. infiltrated my workspace. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Kirk Bourne said, stay a lifelong learner. Uh, great advice from him there. We got Mike Ferguson. Surround yourself with folks who are better than you. And if in doubt, separate out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tejas Menowar said, use software as a service. Don't write code. Write as little code as possible. So for engineers out there, don't be offended. We're just trying to automate things. <laughs> Lars Albertson, keep it simple. As simple as you get as you can get away with and prepare and design for failure. Try to anticipate and plan for them. By the way, this is good life plan as well. Nice. Jans Osman said, in a domain, you can be overwhelmed with information, build a knowledge graph. And he also said, please be kind. Mamad Sadi said, have fun. Danielle Obardier said, network, be authentic, be genuine, be a person first when you network. So be personal. Partha said, Keep learning and keep your eyes and ears open and don't get carried away with innovation. Don't forget about responsibility. Doug Laney said, it is important for organizations to become data literate. That doesn't mean how to use a BI tool or even how to use a catalog tool. That means understanding data value, data misuse versus proper use, data bias, and data architecture and ensure that you're thinking about and implementing change management around data. Eric Bernhardson, think about what the business needs. 
This is an important one, a big theme that we've had throughout. Think about the business. Don't forget about the business. Cindy Housen said, stop building legacy stacks, tools, approaches, no more dead end dashboards. And she said, take control of your career. State of the art keeps on changing. How are you going to stay one step ahead of things, stay on trend and take your career forward? We had Andy Palmer's that start from the consumption of data, the use case, and then you can build the infrastructure to suit the questions and the needs that you have. Nick Schrock said, optimize for the people in your life and around your life. Kelly Wright said, people are the most important asset and let's empower them. How are we thinking about people? How are you thinking about the people in your organization? And then finally, Steve Whitla said, connect to experience. Don't assume others have the same experience as you. Tim, this is it. That's some pretty good advice. There's a lot of good advice. This is great. What is your advice putting you here on the spot? My advice is it's going to be similar to a couple of these here. Don't forget about people. Connect with people. Work with people. Find people that you love to work with. And think about how people fold into the equation, including meaning. People, people, people. What about you, Juan? What's your advice? I tell people always, um, strive for excellence. You know when you're bullshitting. Just You know that. And which leads me to the second one, which is be honest and no BS. I think that's I think that's part of the whole theme of everything we talk here about. Um, just we don't have time for drama. Let's just eliminate drama. Just be honest and no BS about it. Just be honest about about with the people you are, and and if and, and you know you can be honest and no BS if you surround yourself with awesome people who support you because they want that too. Um, another we one should, I always uh, tell people, we should make a podcast around honest no BS. That would be really cool. That's actually a great idea. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Let's pin that one. And finally, don't forget, I don't know is a perfectly valid answer. If you don't know, say it. Because if you don't say it and you start talking, people will realize that you're BSing and that won't look good. So, yeah. If you don't know, also get some experts involved. Well, yeah, it's exactly. And record them for an hour. <laughs> for 70 hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tim. Have an honest no BS break, which actually we're just breaking like for a week because guess what? We're back on January 5th. We are starting season three. Our first guest is Sarah Catanzaro from Amplify Partners. Uh, we want to start talking more to people who are boots on the ground. And one of these are, are we're very excited for our first uh, kind of our real practitioner guest is Emily Hawkins, who's given so many talks about at the DBT Coalesce and, and is doing a lot of courses about analytics engineering. She's at Drizzly. And we also have then after that, Ben Stansel from Mode. Ben has his posts every Friday of Friday Fight. And I am so looking forward to I guess, fighting, discussing, whatever. It will be on a Wednesday, so it will be Wednesday. I don't know. We have to go find another word that starts with W for Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a fun one. He, he's got so many good blog posts. We could, we could just play like roulette, and any of his blog posts could be a great podcast. Exactly. Tim, happy holidays. Cheers. Great. Happy holidays. Happy, no rest for the wicked. We'll be on very shortly. This is Catalog and Cocktails.